Welcome to the Inspiring Minds Podcast, hosted by Justin Starbird and presented by the Edison Awards. Listen as Justin talks with innovators and pioneers that are changing the world around us. True modern-day Thomas Edison's walking among us. Guests will answer the most difficult of questions facing startups, established brands, and folks with great ideas that are just getting started. Learn how these amazing innovators have gone from concept to commercialization and what it took to get there. Take notes as they share with Justin how they navigated through research, development, and in true Thomas Edison fashion, marketed and sold their newfound innovations. You're listening to the Inspiring Minds Podcast. Welcome back to the next episode of Inspiring Minds brought to you by the Edison Awards. My name is Justin Starbird, and today's really exciting. I'm um, uh, really excited to have Ryan Morris, uh, chairman of Software Motor Company, on with me today. Uh, an Edison Award winner this year and doing some incredible things in the uh, hard tech space. Ryan, welcome. Thanks for, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. First, got to say congratulations on um, being an Edison Award winner this year. You guys took home gold in the energy and sustainability category in the smart building solutions subcategory. So congratulations to you. I, I know I say that um, and there's you know, a whole team behind you, but um, it, it's really exciting uh, to be able to, to share in this experience with you. Thanks. Yeah, no, really, uh, you know, appreciate the recognition. It means a lot to us. This yeah, I, I bet. I mean, it's, it's cool. I know my, my team um, has been following uh, your success uh, or rise, uh, rise to success um, over the last couple of years. And, and so I know, um, you know, we've been in, in discussions with them about participating in years past. And so it's always neat to, to finally, um, you know, see a company come through and then not only come through, but uh, but actually have a, a, a winning entry and become gold. What is it, What has that meant to the company? What has that meant to uh, the team? Yeah, well, there's this feeling that uh, some of my friends tell me, you know, when they have their firstborn child that, uh, you know, resonates now. Um, so it's it's good to, uh, to, to feel some recognition. You know, these overnight successes always are actually 10 years in the making. Um, so, yeah, the team has uh, been really heads down for, for a very, very long time. I mean, what we've been doing is very hard science and there's kind of no shortcuts. That's the thing that I think we uh, holds us together as we know there's no shortcuts. And so we've been really focused on our long-term mission, but you know, it's certainly um, nice to have some recognition along the way and uh, you know, have some sort of validation uh, from some, some great credible third parties about this. So appreciate well, it. And, and I know it's been a labor of love uh, for you personally. What, you know, what does it mean to you uh, to to be now? You know, be able to say you're an Edison Award winner. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, I'm glad you guys have a, a podcast to you know bring some depth to it. I mean, there's one thing to have kind of a headline, and that's a nice sort of uh, thing on the mantle. But um, yeah, hopefully, I can share some things that have been helpful for us along the way, and you know, only hope that we can uh, share some good ideas with the community out there. Thank you for that. You know, th those are the, that's really the goal of all of this is to, you know, not just bring value to the participants and the winners, but, you know, the folks that follow us and that, you know, look to and, and, and feel as though Edison has always been an inspiration, you know, to, uh, to them. So it, it's always exciting to, to bring tangible benefits to that and, and, and hear the stories, you know, and your story is unique 
personally, where, you know, I know that um, you're in California now, but it, you've uh, had a long journey to, to get here. Uh, and you've done some pretty neat things along the way. What is your, you know, role now? What are you up to? Yeah, so I'm, I'm executive chairman at the company. We have kind of like a co-CEO structure. So me and Mark Johnston, who is uh, the original founder of SMC, I, we had a, a bit of an unusual uh, journey. Uh, I was actually working on similar technology at a different company in the electric vehicle focused space. And we, we kind of joined forces about three and a half years ago uh, when SMC was a small team that had basically just finished the core R&D proof uh, and the hard kind of physics problems. So yeah, my, my job uh, is I focus on kind of more like the customer uh, marketing and some of the software side, and then like basically the external market facing side. And then Mark focuses more internally on kind of the engineering supply chain and operations. So it's, it's a great partnership. I, it's you know, a bit of a, a yin and yang, like with very different perspectives. Mark's about 30 years older than me and also extremely experienced. Uh, it's actually both of our six companies that we've run not not together but uh, with different histories but uh, we're both um, you know we're both uh, physics guys so uh, sort of very quick to admit when we're wrong and it's made it a really great working relationship and I think we um, you know there's a lot of uh, mutual benefit with it. So tell me a little bit about uh, you know the company that you have created together now and how and and what it is today I mean you know, when you, when you hear a software motor company, it elicits um, certain connotations potentially for uh, for end users. But you know, tell us a little bit about uh, about the company and, and what your mission is. Yeah, so we we have a, a pretty important mission, I think, for the future of energy. So uh, maybe just to give a little bit of a personal background and kind of how it got to this point. But I uh, I learned about nuclear fusion when I was 11 years old, for those who are, you know, maybe around the same age, I'm 35, there's this documentary called The Voyage of the Mimi that we would play in school around 20 something years ago. And uh, it was actually Ben Affleck's big actor breakout. He was the star of the show. Mimi was a ship and there'd be all this science. But anyway, that's, I learned about nuclear fusion and this concept that technology could so save I'm 35 I'll, I'll, I'll say this I'm only two years older it? than yeah well I remember it but it it certainly didn't have the same impact <laughs> that it's had for, had for you so I do remember well, you, yeah <laughs> you probably had you probably had more friends when you were 11 than me then so you're, you know <laughs> we're more distracted uh, but yeah so I, I learned about this thing and just the concept of nuclear fusion and being able to harness you know incredible energy that the sun provides uh, in an artificial way that we could effectively save humanity from pollution and waste and have unlimited clean energy to let humanity thrive was this very motivating concept to me. So I, I kind of joke, I'm Canadian, so I'm, I'm slightly pro global warming, but a uh, very distasteful of pollution. Uh, you know, so I uh, <laughs> thought it would, I thought it would be very great. And I, I got very deep into, you know, physics books and fundamental particle physics centered model when I was, you know, not hanging out with uh, being one of the cool kids when I was 11, 12 years old. And then, uh, you know, I got into business because my father was very smart saying, hey, you got to, you know, use business. You need resources if you want to solve really important problems. And that's what business is all about. So I always have viewed business and companies as basically vehicles for solving important problems in the world. You know, the profit motive, obviously, is a way of keeping track of are you using those resources uh, well or not. But, but companies ultimately are a vehicle for change. In the world, and so our mission with SMC is uh, to transform all of the motors in the world to 
optimally efficient motor systems. And what that means is, uh, just for context, most people don't realize this because it's, it's a market that has had so little change. All of our competitors are over a century old. And uh, almost half of the electricity today in the world, over a trillion dollars a year of electricity is consumed by electric motors. And 98% of those motors are in architecture that's about 130 years old called an AC induction motor that Nikola Tesla famously invented. And they were brilliant for the time, but you know, tell me one other market that has 130 year old technology as the leading, you know, the dominant uh, category today. And uh, I don't know of any others that, that exist like that. So, right. you know, yeah. there's cert certainly ripe for change. And, uh, you know, they're, you know, on the whole over their whole duty cycle, uh, maybe 50% efficient, you know, at peak load, they're, they're very efficient, but they over like a whole range and uh, they're also not usually intelligently controlled. So, so the real big problem that exists is, you know, uh, something like 20 plus percent of the world's electricity is basically being wasted just to, to heat loss, uh, thermal entropy. And there's not really been a great solution to this in the past. It's, you know, certainly compared to internal combustion engines and vehicles, this is a massive improvement. I mean, vehicles, engines are maybe 25% efficient. And so what we have is this architecture that is really the motor for the 21st century. It's called a switch reluctance motor. And it's been known as a concept for a long time, but you could never really control it before. It's kind of the first time that Moore's law applies to an electric motor uh, at a very deep level. So both with the design of it and, and then also the current control. So it's very, very deep hard science. And frankly, uh, it wasn't possible until quite recently. Congratulations on on even uh, you know attempting to solve the problem, let alone come through with a, a a breakthrough. I mean, and that's you know I think that's indicative of of why you guys were named a a gold in that category. And and you know it is really fascinating to hear all of the progress that you've made and and what it is that you're you know attempting to accomplish. It, you know, with that comes a whole, I would have to imagine, system of uh, approaches to innovation. I, I do understand that there's there's science and there's a, a you know, a certain process that you must follow. But, you know, tell us a little bit about, you know, your approaches to innovation. And, and you know, you've, you've said this a couple of times now, but um, solving super hard problems. Yeah, so I think, you know, there's this concept from physics that um, is called thinking in first principles or reasoning from first principles. And the contrast would be analogy. So doing things that other people have done before and then maybe tweaking it a bit. So first principles is this concept that you try to boil things down to the most fundamental truths down to kind of the particle physics um, that there's nowhere deeper to go. And then you build up, you reason up from there. And so that that's a pretty key principle. It's one of, one of our four or five values that we have as a company. And if you think about the motor, so like why did we choose to pursue the path that we did and invest so heavily in the particular architecture that we did? Because it's very easy and like what other companies do in the space is they take an existing design and then they sort of tweak it, you know, from a top-down perspective. They maybe try to use better materials or they, you know, tweak some little things about the design. But we really fundamentally at the core re-architected the motor from the ground up as, as a software first uh, architecture. And so we started with uh, switch reluctance, which uh, again has been kind of known for a long time for certain properties. The most important of which is that it's, um, 
without going sort of too deeply technical on this this podcast, but it, it's basically the most nonlinear uh, type of operation of any motor. So meaning that if you make relatively small changes in the design and the operation, it can actually have big changes on the output. And if you actually look at kind of all of human history and scientific development, uh, nonlinearity is a really key thing because it, it's effectively what it means is a lever. So like think about the transistor, you know, you put in a small current, you can change another very large current. That's nonlinearity. And that opens up, you know, a lot of downstream uh, problems that can be solved because of that through, through engineering design. And so we started with this core architecture around the motor, which is very low cost. There's no special materials. It's defined, you know, by these kind of information processing things for the current. Uh, and then we really built up from there, uh, optimizing the design of the motor using very advanced simulation techniques, which uh, allow us to prototype 10,000 plus designs in the time that it would normally take somebody to do two or three in the, in the physical prototypes. That's with the partnership we have with a big company called Ansys that's a leader in making the tools for this. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the CTO is actually on our board of directors. So it's, it's a great, great partnership we've had there. And, and then the software control, you know, it's again, interesting. Like we tried at first, you know, going back to our, our, our founding. So SMC was founded six and a half years ago. We acquired another company that had been working on the core technology for about seven years prior. So it, all in was about 10 years to solve these fundamental problems. But you got to start with the fundamentals before you try to make products. Yeah. And so once we had the hardware working and, and more optimized, you know, then it really took over two and a half years just to develop the novel software control techniques that number one only became possible to implement once you had more advanced computing power, um, you know, which is a Moore's law kind of a tailwind and better power electronics, thanks to the electric vehicle industry. And what was interesting was that it was not sort of, it wasn't insiders that ended up solving the problem. So we, we worked with, what, do you, what do you mean by that? It wasn't insiders. Uh, insiders to the industry. So there's there's not very many people, first of all, that have been working on switch reluctance. It's been mostly in an academic area of interest. And we had, you know, different professors and people who have spent their whole careers working on switch reluctance motors, working with us in, in the early days. And, and we continue to work with them in other in areas of, of research. But what was interesting was the the sort of academic approaches that had, you know, been sort of quote proven to work in in papers. Once you brought them into the real world, it turns out the real world was a whole lot messier, you know, in terms of the amount of variability you have and like manufacturing tolerances and the real world, you know, load uh, factors for, you know, how hard, like if you have a fan turning, it's, there's like back pressure from the, the air, like maybe you get a gust of wind. So the mm -hmm. real world is, is much, much messier. Uh, like there's, you know, air, air resistance uh, and gusts of wind and like you're falling your ball falling to the ground and like your, you know, toy physics example in textbook. And so it turned out that actually a very, very different uh, approach was needed. And it was a, a brilliant engineer who's on our team who actually didn't have much formal training in switch reluctance or any motor technology at all, but was just like a really brilliant Silicon Valley guy okay. <laughs> um, who, who's like a, you know, self-taught pilot and, you know, just a yeah. sort of cra crazy smart guy. So that kind of lateral thinking, um, was really essential. So sort of following, um, you know, you really, you really need to cultivate that diversity in creating innovation. And so focusing on first principles and really focusing on diversity are kind of the key 
um, and, and frankly, making it safe for people to fail. So, you know, you want to try, you want to make sure, if you want to have a company that you make sure has no innovation, just make sure that somebody gets fired if their thing doesn't work. <laughs> right. You know, then yeah, nobody no, will we, ever. <laughs> we see that all the time though. Like, you know, I sit in a unique position because, you know, I, I have a lot of projects that I do, but one of the ones I'm most proud of is being the director of nominations here. And so, you know, that you see companies that maybe worked with years ago that I don't anymore because there, that there was a cultural shift. And I know we're going to touch on that um, in a moment. I, I've got a question queued up for you related to culture. Let me ask you something that just seems so simple, but I, I feel like you have a lot more of a profound answer for it. it is why has this not been done before? Yeah, so I, this is a really important question for people who follow technology. So I, I actually think this is like the single most important question to ask anytime somebody claims to have some new technology. And if the reason is that nobody thought of this before, then um, that's actually, I think, kind of the worst answer possible. And it's like almost certainly somebody has thought of it before. Right. Um, and so the, the, the answer. I, how... So I have something that's really funny about that because, you know, I, oh, yeah. I, I, I deal with, you know, I'm in sales and marketing a lot of times and, 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 um, you know, you deal with a lot of startups or, and, you know, folks that have this billion dollar idea and it's, and everybody's got an idea, right. And everybody's thought of yeah. something, right. Like you have, you know, stay at home moms that are like, Oh, I, I wish there was a, uh, I, I'm going to, I'm going to put the, the soap in a little thing and just throw it in there. It makes it so much easier than dumping it out. Like, you know, but, but then somebody actually has to do it. And there's a huge difference between having the idea and what, you know, and, and um, thinking through it. And then actually like, like you're talking about executing on it. So I'm sorry, continue. It just, the, that, that may, I'm, I'm with you a hundred percent in terms of, you know, the, um, it's all been thought. It, a lot of these things have been thought of before and, and I'm with you. That's a, I always feel that that is such a, uh, it, it's not a great answer. <laughs> yeah, well, the, I mean, the funny thing is actually, so the, the concept in principle of a switched reluctance electric motor actually was originally patented in 1838. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> for somebody to come out and say that, hey, nobody ever thought of this before on, on anything is right. not true. But I, I was actually really lucky. So I had a really good kind of teacher when I was younger from, uh, I read a lot and sort of follow pretty smart people, I guess. So there's a guy named Ray Kurzweil, who is a kind of a hero of mine. He's pretty famous for uh, kind of extrapolating Moore's law, this exponential price performance trend of computing yep. technology that most people are familiar with, certainly as users. I mean, your iPhone today is like a thousand times more memory than it was, you know, 10 years ago or something. So the uh, this concept of exponential price performance trend of information technology coming down a, a, a very predictable cost curve and performance curve is I think the single most important thing to sort of use to forecast that, that question of why was this not possible before? And you have to, you know, so when people talk about the timing wasn't right for a product to be released, I always view that as, okay, the enabling technologies or the enabling components to that system, every product really is a system. And unless you have the ingredients, so whether that's, you know, uh, an iPhone that can store enough music to go for hours. Um, actually, there's a fa fantastic documentary called General Magic that's about this company that was all these Apple people that had exactly the design for the iPhone in 1994. And, you know, if you just look at, again, like the component level, you know, you could hold enough memory on that 
to store like three minutes of music or something. So, you know, not many people are going to buy a phone that stores like three minutes of music, but once it's 3000 hours, then all of a sudden it becomes a real product at the same price point. And so there's a similar dynamic with switch reluctance motors where people have attempted to do this in the past and given up the same thing again applies for electric vehicles. So GM had the EV one in the 1990, 2000, but because the battery technology uh, wasn't good enough yet, you know, it wasn't a real sort of viable product. In our case, the key ingredients were number one, uh, you had to have more computing power in the digital signal processors to uh, do the calculations to shape the current. And number two, you have to have these special things called power electronics, power semiconductors, which really have become much better over the last couple decades, thanks to uh, electric vehicle uh, R&D and, and wind turbines, actually. So, so it's really those key ingredients, and then and then also kind of the IoT angle is a is a part of our business model for shifting towards not just selling a motor as a component, but selling a whole system that then you can you know effectively sell the outcome. You know. The customers don't want to buy a drill; they want to buy a quarter-inch hole. You know, this sort of the famous expression, right? So, if you can, you know, have that connectivity and guarantee that outcome, then it's all of a sudden a real solution, not just a, not just a, pro, a component. Absolutely. So, with that, you have, to, you know, you you've also talked, you know, um, we've talked about super hard problems, but you've also talked about super smart people uh, and and folks that are within your company that have been part of really that are pillars of uh, allowing you to you know solve these these problems and and help um you know bring forward what has you know what what hasn't been done before how have you you know worked to build a culture that actually promotes innovation you just said you know one of the ways that to not do it is to fire somebody for having something not work but you know so easily uh folks and, and corporations get stuck you know um having to answer to shareholders. And so when something doesn't work, you know, they do get like, Oh, how, how do you promote a culture of, of innovation within, um, you know, software motor company? Yeah. You know, that's, that's a great question. That's uh, you know, this, there's just this one key and I can tell it to you in one sentence. You know, <laughs> it's, it's easy. No, it's uh, it's, it's obviously a very multifaceted answer there. So <laughs> I think, um, I think, I got to believe it's one, also really challenging right now where you're working <laughs> on something uh, physical that's, you know, that's, uh, you know, with, with the, what's going on in the, in the world right now. Um, it's well, let me, it yeah, let me come, let me come back to that one actually on the, to sort okay. of the COVID, the COVID yeah. topic. That, that's a bit of a different dimension, but yeah. So in terms of how do you create a culture of innovation? So I think the one thing, um, so I, I kind of have this pithy expression, things that are not worth doing are not worth doing well. <laughs> So if you have some problem that has not been logically rigorously tested against first principles, you could have the best engineers, the best people in the world, and they're going down a blind alley and they're making something that ultimately just won't work because the enabling factors, components, uh, demand maybe just doesn't exist. So I think that's sort of the, that's like the saddest thing to take a risk that, um, without being thoughtful on the ultimate direction. And so I think we've done a very, very good job, you know, internally and are just beginning to sort of communicate more externally now that we have you know, more customers and more bandwidth. Um, but I think the fact that our mission is, is so very clearly and provably needed to be solved. I mean, the fact that, you know, there is this massive amount of energy use by electric motors, the fact that what's being done today that many smart people have been working on 
for example, optimizing the AC induction motor to death to the 0.001% over the last century. And there's just kind of no, it can't go any further. Like it's been, the competing technologies have been pushed to their limits and there's just nowhere else to go. It's like, it's like the most efficient internal combustion engine is still an internal combustion engine at the end of the day. And there's you know, thermodynamic limits to its performance. And so what we have is, you know, so, so clearly possible to be such a step function change in the right direction that that, that clarity of long-term direction means that our super smart people are working on something that will absolutely unquestionably amount to something that has an impact. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, and I think that's really hard. Like when we frankly have recruited, you know, incredibly high quality people from bigger companies that, you know, they were working on some kind of project where there wasn't that kind of clear connection to impact and purpose over the long term. You know, maybe is working on some feature for a product that might not even get released or, you know, the kind of thing that happens at big companies. And so I think we've been able to create an environment where there is a very clear connection to the ultimate mission. And that mission is, is just frankly very credible um, because of, you know, how transparent it is and how much you can battle test it. And so that's a really important one. And then, you know, creating the space for people to, you know, kind of be empowering the individual is, is fundamentally what our culture is about is it's about extending trust. And, you know, we, we trust you to, you know, be free and make mistakes and use your judgment. We have very, very few policies at the company, for example, you know, so we really want to extend judgment to, to people and, you need a lot of communication as well. So there's some skill building in that. So, I mean, you can't extend trust blindly, you know, you have to sort of create a common language across the board for people so that you can have that, you know, better communication. Um, yeah. So there's, there's a whole bunch of things. Uh, how have those been, how have those that. been, how have those been tested here in the last, you know, two months? Um, I know Silicon Valley was one of the first places to be quote shut down with the, with all this. Yeah. So, so certainly not, not easy times across the world. Um, I, I would say the, um, the thing that's in the most, that's most threatened right now more than anything is the old status quo. <laughs> um, that's the one thing that for sure is, is not going to come back exactly as before. Unfortunately, we're more aligned with, I think a future that we all want to see, which is less pollution and less waste. So we, We've, we've maintained, I think, a very clear direction through all this. And, and frankly, I've been like unbelievably impressed with the team. So, so just for some context, I mean, we, you know, you can look at our glass door views and we have like 4.7 out of five and, you know, great kind of ratings and that kind of thing. And, you know, I think those are important to see and you know, do surveys and really see how people um, talk about it. But ultimately action is what really matters. You know, people can say one thing and do another. Uh, and I think we're, pretty it's incredible how much consistent we consistency we've seen so for example um we did have to uh you know make some adjustments so we we let go about 13 out of 107 people um as kind of a mostly performance focused restructuring that we did and a, a couple weeks ago and one of you know we came up with this i, I wanted to keep it as you know, minimal as possible because I wanted to keep all of our momentum going as fast as we could because we have this, all these fantastic new products that were just about finished getting into production and going after much bigger markets uh, over time. And so we came up with this program. We said, hey, let's, you know, let's think from first principles. You know, we can raise money. We can, you know, use that to pay salaries. But why don't we just see, 
see what our employees can step up and do. So before we made any decisions of what to do, we, we went out to the employees and said, hey, what, we'll give you this opportunity. We'll say, you know, for the next quarter, maybe it goes to two quarters, depending on what happens in the world. You can take some portion of your cash compensation and uh, reduce it voluntarily. So we're not going to do any top-down policies. That's not our value system. And give you an opportunity that if you reduce your cash compensation, you'll receive more options. So functionally, it's the equivalent of raising money for investors and then paying it a salary. Um, and so I, you know, I, I'm usually the optimistic one. Mark's the more pessimistic one. That's sort of we balance things that uh, and make sure we have all the perspectives usually. And uh, so we ended up having 85% of our employees uh, voluntarily reduce their cash compensation and effectively invest that into the long-term belief and success of the company, uh, an average of 38% reduction and 10% uh, of the company is working for zero cash this quarter. So, and that was all voluntary. Like we didn't, you know, didn't, uh, you know, force anybody to do anything. So that, that was just unbelievable to me. So this, idea of really empowering your people and seeing them step up. Uh, I mean, that, that even exceeded my optimistic expectations, frankly. Nice. I, I don't think I've heard, I've heard of that as a, as an option. That's, that's, um, that's certainly uh, interesting to hear of that. And, and I, I will personally follow up to, you know, see that success and, and what that, what that means for the employees, especially, you know, when you're still at a hundred or so, um, you know, you're still able to say, well, I was, I was employee number, you know, 72, <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, you, you still see that with Apple and Google and I, that's really exciting when you, when they, when you have that type of, of culture and you're bringing these, you know, ideas, both new and, and old together to create new products. How does that impact your commercialization process? How, how, how does that like, you know, I'm, I'm really interested in that because where we're talking about an industry that hasn't evolved with the times over the last hundred years. And in fact, you quoted a patent from the, you know, mid 1800s that, that um, about the, the switch that you're talking about, you know, that's, that's incredible. So how do you take those ideas? And now, you know, we talked about why nobody has done it, but you know, how is that related to the commercialization process for SMC? Yeah, so that that's actually it's a really good question. So new technology in an old industry that has seen very little change. Um, I, number one, actually, is kind of what I have personally specialized in most of my career. Uh, so I, I have some sort of interesting personal insights there. And also, it really speaks to the diversity on the team. So if you just had a bunch of 20, 30 something year old Silicon Valley guys, I think that would be very difficult to be able to empathize with the challenges in a HVAC market where the demographics are, you know, maybe quite a bit different than Silicon Valley. And so, I mean, for one, for me, I, I sort of personally, because of, you know, some on the investing background with, uh, I've actually been exec chairman of three public companies that we went to go turn around. And so this uh, being able to respect and empathize with and understand the reasons why some old industry that hasn't changed a lot, you know, what are the reasons for that? And really, really understand that and the pathways and the people and the processes and power structures that exist in some of those old industries um, without just trying to come in in some brazen Silicon Valley disruptor way and just say, oh, everything you guys are doing is stupid. Let's just go do it differently, which might work in consumer products. But when you look at sort of B2B high reliability industrial type markets or HVAC 
as an example, uh, you know, you, you really can't pave over um, all the existing structures the way that, you know, Tesla that sells directly to consumers can, can certainly do that, um, you know, with, with a vehicle, for example, and, you know, just avoid all the existing dealerships and, and all that. So, you know, there's a, there's a degree of sort of deep empathy and listening and, you know, having that diversity. So, I mean, for example, one of the guys who joined our team uh, named Sam two and a half years ago, you know, he personally had built a mechanical HVAC mechanical contracting business uh, for 20, 30 years and sold it, and, you know, bought a sports car and was sort of like, hey, I'd, you know, I need some purpose in life now. My, my wife wants me out of the house. And so <laughs> I, I, you know, so I, I met him and, uh, you know, persuaded him to, to join us pretty early. I think he was maybe the 20th person or something at the company. And so just as an example there, you know, he, I remember there was this one project we were doing where Sam background in HVAC contracting, climbing up on roofs, you know, turning wrenches when he's younger before building his team and, and selling the company, you know, he's working alongside a Silicon Valley data science engineer. And he's just, you know, he told me this thing once he's just, you know, I, I couldn't even have imagined when would I be working with somebody, you know, like that smart and in that kind of field, you know, this is so cool. And I'm getting this sort of diversity of, of experience. And, you know, I guess for, just for me personally, like I, I really love that. I mean, I actually took a year off school to go work as a, you know, in the oil patch in Northern Canada between my engineering problem sets at Cornell, just to kind of embrace more of that diversity. So I, I really, I really love that as a company, we can really um, see sort of all sides from sort of extreme, uh, you know, software engineering to hardware people with tons of experience manufacturing hardware, and, you know, China and India to the people who are actually in the field who maybe have been doing more or less the same thing for 20 or 30 years and now are really embracing this this change that can transform their their industry. Yeah, I, I mean, that's uh, I've had a couple of conversations with with folks and as we listen to the podcast, you'll you'll hear those come out where, you know, the diversity in the team, you know, led to. Uh, you know, not just differing of opinions, but, you know, you, different ways of looking at how to solve the same problem. And, and that really led to making sure they didn't miss any steps along the way. And, and to that end, you know, you guys have had some pretty, pretty incredible milestones that you've hit so far. Can you talk a little bit about some of those uh, that you've, uh, milestones that you've hit and, and accomplishments you've had along this process? Sure. Yeah, I can go through a few. So the, the big, uh, the big one that I describe as going from solving the hard physics problems to then moving into engineering uh, was about three and a half years ago. So that that was when, after 10 years of cumulative work, including our predecessor company, we finally solved the uh, efficient software control problem that I referenced earlier. So before that, uh, you know, that was the point where we tangibly could say, hey, we have the most efficient and the lowest cost to manufacture at the same time, electric motor in the world. And not only that, but this architecture will generalize to you know many, many different types of motor designs, virtually all of them. And so that was about three and a half years ago. So there's a big transition I like to describe that when you're solving physics problems, this is like nuclear fusion, um, it takes you a 10x order of magnitude of difficulty to solve something. So, you know, if I if I don't know and I'm in fundamental research mode, it'll take me between, you know, one and 10 years to solve a problem. It's a huge range. Versus once you get into engineering problems, it's sort of like building a bridge. It's like, you know, I'll be 
plus or minus 30 to 50 percent but you know it's sort of within a uh, 2x order of magnitude yep. and so we we really crossed that sort of technology physics fundamental risks into the point where okay we know this works like we've now proven you know beyond a doubt the core idea here that we've been building for 10 years this works now we need to go proliferate it and so you have the, the fundamentals in place so that was a big deal and that that was actually when i first got involved with the company to really help you know help scale it so we went from you know 10 people focused on r&d to beginning to build up to now 100 people today so that was a, a key big milestone there were a number of, of key milestones of third-party scientific validation so we won uh, national science foundation awards you know going back a few years uh kind of some initial real world uh pilot customers that did it on kind of a scientific basis um there was uh, a pretty big milestone about two years ago getting kind of our first industry uh sales professional so once we actually had a product that was sort of manufacturable at scale and we'd done enough sort of proof of concepts now we could begin the sales process which in any high reliability product like this it's quite long you know your first customers are absolutely the hardest you know it took uh probably a year and a half to get our first customers because mm -hmm. while the energy while the energy savings are extremely compelling it's like a two-year payback so it's even better than led lighting um you know if it breaks their whole store or their whole facility might have to get shut down. And so the, you have to overcome that risk, um, that risk uh, reticence through, through a lot of proof. So that, that was two years ago that we kind of started the real sales process. And then it was actually only about, um, you know, it was about six months ago or so that we crossed another very key milestone in the market where we had amassed kind of a, a sufficient amount of, number one, reference customers, and number two, uh, our uh, sort of third-party National Science Foundation and um, Department of Energy, NREL, and a number of utility commissions had published kind of peer-reviewed uh, proof of the energy savings. And that really opened up the market to us because once you have that stamp of approval in a peer-reviewed way from a, uh, an agency like that, it really, you know, it, it takes away the question of, hey, does this even work? Yeah, and then, no, it, absolutely. And then, and then it be, then it becomes more of a you know traditional sales enterprise sales process, and so that that was about you know six only six months ago. So we've really just in the last six months been able to kind of be unleashed and and going after large customers at, at scale now. Sure. So many milestones to come, but those are those are kind of the key ones in the well, building and, business. And in the last month, you've been able to put Edison Award winner in there too. So there exactly, <laughs> that's, that's the it all comes together there. There you go. Yeah, and we, well, you know, <laughs> we've had some, and we've had some great investors. You know, like JLL, the big facility manager, and sure, uh, and BMW have been fantastic partners. Um, so with that though, uh, you know, I so coming from the sales marketing side of things, in fact, I borrowed a term from somebody I followed named Dean Jackson. He's um, on the, on the marketing guru side and, you know, we, we create content testimonials about, uh, you know, for our clients and customers. So instead of going there and asking them, Hey, to write, write, write a review or, you know, give us a, um, a case study that you can tell how our solution helped you, you know, we, we work with them in, in this fashion where we actually, you know, create, uh, help them create content and talk about what the partnership was because, you know, a good, a good testimony always comes, you know, comes out that it's, it's really a partnership that was created that allowed you to solve to your point, you know, really, really super hard problems. 
And yeah. uh, that's always exciting when you, when you have those back. And, and uh, you know, that's always something that when I'm advising um, businesses or, or helping build businesses myself, it's, you know, okay, well, who's had a positive experience so far and, and going and get them um, and, and getting them quoted so that, uh, you know, there's a um, social proof in that. And, you know, you've yeah. had, you, you've had a lot of steps along the way that, you know, other, other companies could potentially follow. I know we, we talked briefly off air about, you know, ways in which um, the steps that the, the SMC has, has followed, you know, could be, could be used by other, other companies. Can you, can you talk a little bit about, you know, some of the things that a startup or a small company could emulate as they, you know, listen here and, and actually, you know, follow the success of the company? Yeah. Uh so that's, uh, it's funny on the marketing side, I mean, social proof and all those marketing, I'm an engineer and sort of first physics guy by background. So I only kind of recently in life had understood anything about sales and marketing. Uh, and I'm <laughs> certainly no expert on it. But I, I sort of just like to say, uh, you're smart, and I'm right. So eventually, you're going to see that I'm, I'm right here. So <laughs> it helps to have something that works is my point. Absolutely. Um, so you, you know, <laughs> your social proof, social proof can only go so far if you think it doesn't actually work. Uh, yeah, no, no, fun no examples doubt. for that. Yes. But, um, you know, well, so especially that, when you're talking about physics and hard science, yeah. <laughs> you know, and so, so I, you know, it's got to be a story too, right? Even, even these things, it's got to be, you know, compelling and it's got to be interesting, you know, the, um, because in order for that hard science to then come out, uh, right, like, um, and it, it becomes adopted a whole lot quicker once people can, can um, relate to it. And so you guys have done a great job with being able to do that from any outward um, expression and, and marketing that you have, whether that be your website, even, even some of the, the projects that you personally have gone on. I, you say that you're not in marketing, but you certainly have, have done a great job of, of putting yourself and by, by extension, the company out there to be successful um, and, and you're in Silicon Valley where a lot of times, you know, the altruistic vantage point or viewpoint of the founders is to solve the problem and then, you know, not worry about, you know, revenue. But, but at the end of the day, if you don't have revenue, then that view may not see the light at the end of the tunnel. And so, um, you know, it's, it's neat to see that you're marrying that vision of, uh, of both the company culture, but also the problems that you're solving uh, and making it relatable and putting it into products that everybody uses on a daily basis. Uh, and to your point where you said that, you know, it's adaptable to uh, pretty much any, any motor that's out there, uh, that actually means something. And, you know, your ability to tell that story is, it is really, really great so far. And, and I think it's important for companies as they look at your success, at least from my vantage point, is to see your success and as they try to reverse engineer how you got there, maybe not in the, in the science and create a new product, but you know, to see some of those steps um, where you did spend the time on the R&D, you did you know, solve the super hard problem. You know, science is science, it's gonna be proven out. There's, to your point um, about being right or, or, or having the social proof is, you know, you've proven to be, to be right. And now that you have the social proof, it, it appears that you are certainly well on your way. So that's really exciting. And, and you didn't miss any of those steps. And I think that's important for folks to, to take away from um, as they, you know, look to you for inspiration, if you will. Yeah. So I'm, I'm like, uh, I really, 
I really hate some of the Silicon Valley fake it till you make it kind of uh, (laughs) stuff that you hear about. I'm like a really big non-believer in that approach. So, uh, you know, I think you need to have the strong foundation first. And, and And to that point, you know, one thing that, you know, maybe my piece of advice for other startups that are doing hard, hard things is I think of building a company as kind of this like four dimensional puzzle. So the fourth dimension obviously being time. And, you know, there's a lot of different people, different customers and things that you need at different phases of your, of your growth. Uh, and it's very important to think about how to sequence things in the right order. So as an example, I worked in my previous company that we sold a few years ago um, to Bork Warner. We did electric vehicle uh, powertrains. And I've seen, you know, for example, some other companies that, you know, they say, hey, we have this technology and there's this enormous market in electric vehicles or something as like, you know, the target that we're going to go after. And these are typically academics or technologists. And the challenge there is that that is like one of, if not the most rigorous sort of high barrier to, you know, reliability that you could possibly imagine. And so you really, you really want to think about how can I, instead of trying to, you know, be a fledgling startup and scale up a granite sheer cliff as my first rock climbing attempt, you know, how could I sort of break that down into like a flight of stairs where I could make some incremental progress and get some feedback because any new product, especially with hardware involved, you know, you're going to have teething issues. You're going to have, uh, you're going to have to iterate. So, you know, in the software world, people talk about, uh, you know, you shouldn't be, you sh- if you're not embarrassed by your first version of your product, uh, then, you know, you released it too late. Well, you know, that doesn't work in like medical devices, <laughs> you know? Right. So you you kind of have to have a bit of a different approach when you have hardware where like you're managing that reliability exposure so that you're sort of only incrementally exposing yourself to as much uh, kind of reliability risk, let's call it, as you know you can handle and fix quickly. Um, because inevitably you're going to have issues. So if we had immediately shipped out 10,000 units, you know, two and a half years ago, you know, it would have been like a disaster. I mean, we had to go through beta testing and, you know, iterate on the electronics and work out the bugs and get the, get the reliability rate up so that by the time, you know, this year when we ship 10,000 units, you know, it's maybe a less than 1% failure rate and we'll be able to solve it before the customer even knows there's a problem. Uh, but, you know, that there's quite a lot of engineering work that, that went into that, for example, that could not have been shortcut. So I think, you know, the most important advice is, you know, never, never look for shortcuts. I mean, just embrace the fact that there has to be a certain sequencing of things and, uh, you know, any shortcuts are only going to get you in, in trouble and it's going to cut off the, the long path. And that that's such a great point, uh, you know, because, you know, coming from, I, I feel like that's part, that's partially probably your background too, right? You're from uh, Canada, from Toronto. A very High pain hard- tolerance. Yeah, <laughs> no, man, I, I'm sitting just outside of Portland, Maine right now as we record this. And, um, you know, it's a very similar culture. So I understand, you know, some of that, it, not, not, um, there are no shortcuts to success. Those overnight successes, like you said at the very beginning, were typically, you know, long and painful nights um, without without that success. And so, you know, it's really neat to hear your story, man. And um, so so glad to have you guys on uh, on the podcast today. And and appreciate you, you know, participating. And congratulations on on being named a, a gold winner. So um, thanks for thanks for joining me today. Thanks. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Again, appreciate the the uh, appreciation for the the team. It's great to have them recognized.
Yeah, no, that's awesome. All right, and you know, Ryan, thanks again. For all of you out there, this has been the latest episode of Inspiring Minds. My, my name is Justin Serber, and you can listen to the podcast at edisonawards.com slash inspiringminds. You have been listening to the Inspiring Minds podcast presented by the Edison Awards. On behalf of our guest today and host, Justin Starbird, thank you for listening. Please share your feedback on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Edison Awards. If you have a great guest idea or want to share your inspiring story, please email Justin at justin at edisonawards.com for consideration. Thank you for listening to the Inspiring Minds podcast. 